You're listening to Take as Directed, a podcast on global health policy and the news, events, issues, and the people it affects. And the problem is the world is in a shortage of vaccine. The health system perpetuates gender inequalities and restrictive gender norms. This stigma, shame, and fear is what drives this disease and keeps it in the dark. I'm Steve Morrison, director of the Global Health Policy Center at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this podcast, you'll hear conversations led either by me or by my colleagues, Sarah Allender, Janet Fleischman, and Nellie Bristol, who serve as recurring hosts. We interview leaders fighting against malaria, polio, HIV AIDS, the opioids epidemic, some of the biggest public health challenges of our time. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Take as Directed. I'm Catherine Bliss, a senior fellow with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. In early March, the World Health Organization declared the outbreak of the novel coronavirus, now known as COVID-19, to be a pandemic. As the number of confirmed cases worldwide increases, it has become clear that efforts to respond to the outbreak will disrupt many routine health services, including routine immunizations. Already, there are reports that families in many different contexts are delaying taking their children in for immunizations, wary of being infected with COVID-19 while at the health center. At the same time, any hope of putting an end to social distancing and returning to normal hinges on the successful development and delivery of a vaccine to prevent COVID-19. While COVID-19 has changed the landscape of immunization activities over the past few months, Back in late January, well before the WHO declaration of a pandemic, I had the opportunity to discuss the future of global immunization efforts with two experts in the field. As the global community celebrates World Immunization Week, it's also looking ahead to the World Health Assembly, which is when member countries are expected to approve Immunization Agenda 2030. Lately, there's been a lot of discussion about how the new global plan for improving access to vaccines will contribute to universal health coverage, which itself was the subject of a high-level UN meeting last fall in New York. And with the World Health Assembly in May, as well as the Gavi replenishment coming up in June, it seemed like a good time to ask, what exactly is universal health coverage? What is the relationship between immunizations and universal health coverage? And is the relationship just a positive, mutually reinforcing two-way street? Or is there more to it? Are there tensions we should think about? Here to answer these questions and share their perspective, honed over several decades of work in and out of government and with government and in countries across Africa, Asia, and Europe, are two immunization experts. I'm pleased to welcome Angela Shen, retired now from the U.S. Public Health Service and currently a visiting professor at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and Drexel University, and Laura Shimp, Technical Director for Immunizations at John Snow. So Angela and Laura, welcome. Thank you both for being here. Thank you for Thank having you. us. So let's get started. Angela, when we talk about UHC, what exactly do we mean? Is it universal health coverage? Is it universal health care? Are they the same thing? Are they not? Does it matter? That's a really good question. Universal health coverage is an idea. It's an idea where all people can access the health services they need to stay healthy or to get healthy without suffering financial hardship. Sometimes people characterize UHC as universal health care. Universal health care is a system that provides quality care, health care, medical services 
to all, regardless of the ability to pay. In some countries like the U.S. that do not have universal health care, they have specific components such as Medicare, Medicaid, and the Department of Veterans Affairs that provide universal health care to specific populations. So when we reference and refer to universal health coverage, it's this idea that we're striving for. It's built on what folks may remember years ago and currently today, this concept of also primary health care, an approach to sustainable improvements in health status amongst the world's most disadvantaged populations, mindful and sensitive to economic and social and political determinants of health. It's a movement to shift away authority from just established medical infrastructure to also community-based decision-making. And the bottom line is community empowerment into community participation. So universal health coverage is an ideal that grows out of larger discussions about universal health care and primary health care. Laura, let me ask you, what is the expanded program on immunization and how did that come about? The EPI, as it's often referred to in countries, the expanded program on immunization, grew out in many cases from smallpox eradication and the early days of implementing the uh, primary health care agenda with a focus on immunization and vaccination in countries to help develop their systems to be able to deliver vaccines, as well as the programmatic and operational needs to help make sure that the vaccines reach the populations who needed to be served. And in many cases, it's been a mature program in that it's been in existence since the 80s, um, sometimes as a department, sometimes as a program within the Ministry of Health, and therefore very linked with the other departments or programs that are all together achieving universal health coverage across the continuum of care for different primary services like maternal child health um, and adult uh, health these days now because of adult vaccination and other initiatives. Okay, so... The expanded program on immunization and immunization initiatives at the national level are related to the health ministry, but sometimes housed separately or have different administration. What is the relationship then between immunizations and and UHC programs? You know, and Angela, tell us why are immunizations good for achieving universal health coverage or universal health care? That's a really good question. Immunizations is known for a number of things. As Laura said, it's been around since the 70s. It emerged at a time where vertical disease programs were popular and they were a pressing need to combat serious health threats. As we look broadly on how to take care of all people at all times, immunizations stands out because its reputation as well as ability to reach all, to reach the edges of countries, to its peaks in the top of mountains, to the troughs in the deepest of deserts. Immunization also has a number of touch points in the first year of life, as well as arguably the second year of life. And so you have a lot of engagement and encounter with the healthcare system. People in low and middle income countries, as well as in the United States and in the developing world, know that immunization is associated with children. You know as a mother, as a parent, that you're supposed to get your child vaccinated. It's something that is their right and the parent's responsibility. A third point that's important is that the immunization infrastructure is very strong and serves as a platform for other health needs, preparedness, response, emerging infectious diseases. Surveillance alone in immunizations has been a platform in which countries currently build their emergency preparedness and global health security. 
So, Laura, Angela has, you know, really laid out the ways in which immunization can serve as a platform or a you know, the backbone of the larger set of health services and really help promote surveillance, disease surveillance, as well as uh, resilience and global health security. Sort of conversely, looking at the question from the other side, why is UHC good for immunizations? In large part, it will help with the sustainability question that's always there. Trying to move away from vertical programs or disease-specific interventions and more to a holistic approach of primary health care being able to reach populations with the menu of services that they need to be able to ensure the health of their community, their individuals, the mothers, the children, the families, but also then being able to have those points of convergence or opportunistic uh, areas where they can provide linked services to make sure that there's a, a whole approach to how you access populations. So not just having an immunization session, but having a child health session, for example, where you can provide a multitude of services at these five, six points of contact every year in a country, or that interface that you can have with financing to be able to fund outreach services together to provide multiple uh, interventions, as well as being able to have that umbrella context that universal healthcare can provide where you want to ensure that preventive services like immunization are also well-funded and resourced both financially as well as the human resources needed for delivery to be able to make sure that the preventive services will be able to access uh, the populations and that they will have that demand and uptake to participate in those services. So it sounds like it's really a positive dynamic, a two-way street where immunizations reinforce broader health goals, but the path towards universal health coverage also supports access to immunizations for children and, by extension, their families. So is the relationship just a good news story, or is there any reason to think about tensions between the push toward universal immunization on the one hand and the push toward universal health care or coverage on the other? And you know, is there anything about the financing or the structure of the programs that we should be thinking about as we look ahead to IA 2030 and beyond? So, Angela, let me ask you that first. It's a good question. Policymakers need to make decisions. They need to make trade-offs. We can't have everything. And you need to make trade-offs between three dimensions. Who are the people covered? What are the costs that are covered? And what are the range of services available in a way that maximizes health and contains costs? The question is about choice. Which services do you cover? Who do you include in coverage? And how do you shift from out-of-pocket to prepayment or whatever the financing needs are in the country? It's key to make sure that there's defined institutional responsibility for the immunization program function and that there aren't incentives that disadvantage immunization services. Laura, from your perspective, working with countries to implement programs where have you seen any tensions or, or is this really just a mutually reinforcing relationship? Thanks. It is a very interesting question and one that many countries grapple with in trying to be able to fund their programs either through public or private uh, financing, but then being able to also ensure that an annual cohort of population that has to be vaccinated every year, even though you might have 80, 90, almost 100% coverage, that's only good for one year. The next cohort is going to come through and need those vaccinations, particularly for children in the next year. And part of it is how do you have that base of resources for program operational um, continuity that often is 
under a decentralized system where you have primary health care as the base and integrated services are the norm versus the more verticalized need that you'd still have for centralized procurement for vaccines, for example, that have to come through the public health sector program, where you need to protect that line item in the budget for those vaccines, but also make sure that they're not separated from the need to have other preventive services or or curative services that would go along with them. For example, with HPV vaccine, it can be under the immunization system, but it has to be part of a cervical cancer prevention activity. It has to look at adolescent health. And you really want to be looking more along a life course trajectory than what you would have with just focusing on under one populations. So it's really trying to make sure that you have that horizontal alignment while also being able to have the immunization financing somewhat ring-fenced, but not where it becomes competitive, but where it becomes symbiotic. And that's challenging in some cases, depending on the financial situation in the countries or the donor investments that sometimes have a particular alignment uh, in the way that they are resourced. So Immunization Agenda 2030 has been under consideration and planning for some time. Laura, you've worked with some of the, the different planning groups or working groups that have been focused on different aspects of it. What is IA 2030? How do its goals support UHC? And what are you going to be watching for as countries gather at the World Health Assembly to debate and presumably approve it in May of this year? Yeah, under the leadership of WHO, they're looking at their next 10-year plan for immunization and across the life course, so from birth to adulthood, looking at now the next wave of what had been the previous plan, the Global Vaccine Action Plan, taking this more now into a people-centered, country-owned partnership approach with a variety of stakeholders, both from UN, so WHO, UNICEF, and those affiliates, as well as the civil society, the partnerships, the donor communities, Gates Foundation, the other organizations that are funding Gavi, that are part of the Gavi Alliance and moving this forward, and really trying to look across what they've identified as six pillars, which are the commitment and demand and and making sure that ownership and accountability are there, coverage and equity, life course and integration, uh, emergencies and transitioning fragile areas, systems and sustainability and research and innovation, and really trying to align that with UHC so that it is a holistic approach while you still maintain the focus on getting the vaccinations delivered to all populations, including those particularly who are the most at risk, such as urban slums or rural remote or uh, really fragile, uh, hard to reach areas that are facing conflict in other areas, and really trying to make sure that it is a universal way that we are reaching these populations. And moving that agenda forward within the UHC agenda is going to be a key aspect of IA2030's linkage with both globally the initiative for UHC, but also regionally within the Africa, Europe, Asia, and other uh, PAHO and other communities to to make sure that there's a a tailored approach that happens with those regions and countries where they have ownership of IA2030 as well. So do you anticipate any big debates or discussions at the WHA, or do you think most of that will have been resolved by the time it it gets there? That's a good question. There have been a series of consultations on IA2030, and it really has had inputs. There's been online fora for uh, reviewing the document, the guidelines themselves, and also the sub-regional and regional discussions around how it can be applied and tailored. But I think now moving it into that broader 
discussion around world health and how different programs are going to be financed, trying to be less siloed as an immunization agenda and more of a true operational possibility for some of the WHA objectives more broadly around global health. I think the devil will be in the details in terms of how it's resourced and then how the indicators are transferable so that it's not vertical in immunization, but also really looking across at preventive care and better health care for all, particularly around the life course now with some of these new vaccines that are coming into the system or the ones that are more focused around populations that are aging and uh, other opportunities for a more holistic approach to the way that you handle health based on the demographics that you mentioned earlier. So, Angela, thinking about your experience with the GVAP and thinking about the work that you've done both in U.S. government and, you know, focused domestically as well as internationally, what do you expect to see, assuming IA2030 is approved, in five years and then 10 years down the road? What do you think is likely to happen? Sure. This is a great Look crystal, in your ball crystal ball question. <laughs> I think what I'd like to see is also what I'd hope to see is some meaningful strides in transition for Gavi-eligible and near-Gavi-eligible countries. And that's not an easy task. It's taken a while. It continues to take a while. And in five to 10 years, that's one thing. And then the second, which will be important as well as interesting is how the realities of what political need or political will will need to happen to shift the move towards a PHC-oriented world, recognizing that every country will develop its own path, reflecting its own culture and legacy from existing systems, and also understanding that UHC could be achieved in many different ways. I think those two things, some significant and meaningful strides in these countries that need to be weaned off of not just Gavi, but Gavi as a surrogate for donor funding, and what the realities look like in countries as political will shifts towards hopefully more a more PHC-oriented world. So, Laura, Angela has you know, raised this question of the near-Gavi eligible countries, something the Gavi board is currently discussing, you know, how it may be possible to focus on those lower middle income and even upper middle income countries that comprise a pretty sizable portion of the population that's not immunized. What do you see within IA 2030, you know, that will kind of help bring those countries better support to realize those goals? And where do you see things moving, you know, 10 years down the road? And does the global community have what it needs to get us there? That's a very good question and a very difficult question, because uh, as many partners, both bilateral partners like USAID, JICA, and DFID and other partners have bought into Gavi and also have their own support that they're providing directly to countries or across USG investments or other government investments. Part of it is also for them to be able to align as clearly as possible in the way that their resources flow for IA2030 or for UHC. And then what that's going to mean in terms of how you tailor that to really country-owned and country-driven processes when we know that many countries, middle-income as well as lower-income, grapple with being able to meet the basic primary health care needs of their populations, where you have subnational program funding, but you have some national public health funding. But in many cases, the resource envelope is just not large enough even to ensure regular routine immunization services, let alone the broader preventive health needs that, that would really cover the 
all of the population's uh, needs for better health care. So I think in 10 years, it's really for most success, it's going to need to really have more dialogue with the countries on what makes sense in terms of their costing and budgeting for their immunization program as part of their larger health envelope and their uh, health portfolio. There's micro planning that's done in most countries, but in the sense of that being really adaptive and costed to the needs of local communities. That's an area that we under JSI have been looking at with ministries of health for a long time in terms of what does it really mean from a practical perspective to get services five, six times a year to a population on a regular basis where you can ensure that you're meeting their needs holistically and helping countries to think through that from a not just vertical individual immunization perspective, but how do you look at that as like I said earlier, these points of convergence where you can add other services or where you can also link with other services, reproductive health, HIV, other programs where you have uh, the ability to harmonize your delivery so that you can actually provide more integrated and linked services that meet those needs. So part of it is really having the framework of IA2030, but then being able to have some flexibility in how it links across these key interventions of UHC like global coverage and um, the ability to really tailor to uh, learning from what the countries need. So lots of challenging and potentially difficult discussions ahead, but considerable opportunities as well. Dr. Angela Shen and Laura Shimp, Thank you very much for speaking with me today about the linkages between immunization programs and universal health coverage. Thank you to the audience for joining us today for this episode of Take As Directed. I invite you to subscribe so that you never miss our latest episodes. To keep up to date with our latest work, please visit the CSIS Global Health Policy Center program page at csis.org. 